God, you are our God and there is no other. Father, you say in Isaiah 42, you say, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. And he shows himself mighty against his foes. This is the greatness of our God. None can stand against you. On the altar of our praise, there can be no other name. And if there's any other name on the altar of our praise, of our hearts today, God, any person, anything, God, may we see you for who you are, see you rightly and in a fear of the Lord and in a reverence and a love for you. Say, my altar is Christ alone. He deserves it all, and we just cast that on you right now. We just cast that and say, you, Jesus, are what I want. You, Jesus, are who I need. You, Jesus, are my king and deserve it of all glory. You will not share it with another. On the altar of our praise, may there be no other name than Jesus, the Son of God. So, Lord, please, Holy Spirit, please come and fill my mouth right now. Say what you want to say to your church. May we humble ourselves. It's not just be another Sunday, but say, God, speak to me. Manifest your presence. We need you so much, and we are dependent on you alone. Oh, please, God, in your mercy, meet with your church today. Open eyes to see and ears to hear and heart to respond what you would say. We would leave here saying, I love Jesus. I want to love him more and love others as myself. Would you have mercy and do this work in us today? In the name of Jesus Christ, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, church, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word in front of you, just raise up your hand. Our ushers are coming right now. We'd love to put a Bible in your lap so you can continue to follow along with the service today. We go verse by verse, line by line, every week through God's word, praise the Lord. And so you're going to want to have a copy of God's word in front of you. And it's on page 483 of those Bibles we're handing out. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Well, last week we kicked off our first series of the year called Discovering Hope. And in this series, over the next six weeks now, we're going to be looking at the mission that Christ has entrusted his church with and what Christ calls his church to uphold if it is to be truly alive in him and see that mission fulfilled. And so last week, we started with the what. The what of the mission. What is the mission that Christ has given his church? And it is to this. We saw from Matthew 28, 16 to 20, to make disciples. Ones who progressively learn the word of God 
and increasingly are obedient to it by his power in their lives. And that's called the Great Commission. And I don't know if you notice this, I really pray you do. Every time you walk in those side doors, those main doors of the church, you should see this banner in front of the gym doors. You'll see it on the screen. There it is. That banner right outside those doors, strategically placed to constantly bring us back and refresh our minds and our hearts on why we do what we do. This is the mission statement of our church, to glorify God through the fulfillment of the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. Now, I want to draw your attention to the last part of that mission statement. We looked at the first part last week, to glorify God through the fulfillment of the great commission, and now this, in the spirit of the great commandment. Why is that so important? That's not just some little add-on to make the sentence round out nice. Why is that piece absolutely crucial if we we're going to be faithful in fulfilling the mission God's give us, given us and be alive in him? Here's why. Because the great commandment is not only the motive and not only has to be the motive for our mission of why we make disciples, of why we want to see God glorified, but it is, on, here, you'll see this today, it is the command that every other command in God's word, get this, hangs or depends upon. Every other command in God's word hangs on the great command. That's why it's called the great commandment. If I could sum that up, I'd say this. Church, families, individuals, if we get the great commandment right, living it out by the power of God and the Holy Spirit in our lives, it's very hard to get anything else wrong. If we get the great commandment right, it's very difficult. You'd actually have to try to get other things wrong. And what is that command? The command is to love. The, man, the command is to love God and love others increasingly. But there's a, a big problem today. And I think if you look around the culture, you're going to see this head on. You don't have to look far. We live in a culture that gives a distorted view of what love is. Would you agree? We live in a culture that gives a distorted, deceptive, twisted view of what love truly is and what it should look like. And here's the thing. Let's just be honest, okay? We're in church. Let's be honest. We buy into it daily. We buy into it daily in our families. We buy into it daily in our marriages. We buy into it daily in our relationships with classmates or neighbors or coworkers. And we buy into it daily in the church. See, because instead of being motivated by a growing love for God and others, our motivation for what we do and how we live, it goes to the only place it can go otherwise, a love for self. And instead of seeing a growing love for God that wants to see him glorified, guess who wants the glory? You and me. Because that's the only place it can go if the great commandment is not being fulfilled increasingly. And so the result is, hey, get this, let's just shoot straight. The result is this, all of the disunity, all of the selfishness, all of our discord, all of our grumbling, 
all of our complaining, all of our gossip, all of our pride, all of the mission drift that happens in our families, in our lives, in our workplaces, guess what? All of that happens because faithfulness to the great commandment's missing. That's what everything boils down to. And so the truth is this, we have to understand today, loved ones, a growing love for God and a growing love for others is the only motivation that will sustain us in living on mission for Christ. Everything else is a dead end. This is the only motivation. Because here's the thing, when we start sidetracking, when we start minimizing the need for growing in our love for God and our love for others, the mission, as we've been called to, stops for us. So here in our text, we're going to see two truths of this commandment today that we, honestly, loved ones, not a word of life, must embrace. We must embrace and apply by the power of the Holy Spirit increasingly if we are to stay faithful in living on mission for Christ and be a church, be families, be individuals that are alive in him. Let's open up to Matthew 22, 34 to 40, and let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. And let's read this together. From these passages, the great commandment, let's go, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, will you read this with me, church? They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You may be seated. Well, the first truth that we're confronted with today is this. The motive for our mission must be love Loving God with all we are, total devotion. Total devotion. And the first question that we're confronted with that we need to take home today and bring before the Lord is this. God wants all of me devoted to him. Am I growing in my love for him? God wants all of me devoted to him. Am I growing in my love for him? Now let's get some context of what's happening here. This is the final week of Jesus' ministry. This is the Passion Week. And he's on, it's the Tuesday. So you know, Last Supper's Thursday, Crucifixion on Friday, Resurrection Sunday. This is the Tuesday. And it's three days before his crucifixion. And Jesus is in Jerusalem right now. And he's teaching at the temple on the kingdom of God. He's teaching on the kingdom of God. And here, he's declaring right here the greatest priority of the kingdom. What's the greatest priority of the kingdom? Read the text. It's to love. Jesus commands us here. He says, your priority as followers of Christ is not primarily your performance. It's your affection for me. Any Mission that we live out, 
Any works that we do for the living God are not to earn something from him, but an overflow of an increasing love for him. That's why we serve. That's why we humble ourselves. That's why we worship him. It's because of a growing love for God. Our primary command given to us by our king is for our affection, not our performance. That doesn't excuse laziness. But it says we, have, we need to serve him from a right heart of growing love for him. And so as a result of this, there's tension mounting around Jesus because there's groups of religious leaders. You can see why this was such a burn for these religious leaders, this truth. Groups of religious leaders are trying to discredit and trap Jesus to bring him to trial. And there's two groups mentioned here. Look at 34. The first one is a religious group called the Pharisees, about 6,000 in number. And the, the Greek word for Pharisee, here, this is why. You're going to see why this commandment rubs them the wrong way. It means pharisaios, which means a purist or separatist from sin. Do we have any uh, separatists in the room? I need to talk to you after something because I need that help. A purist or separatist from sin. You guys are all sinners, but not us. We're Pharisees. We're purists. We're good. Right? And so they are like the ones who, in their own eyes, are completely set apart from sin. They're like the pièce de résistance of God's holiness and righteousness. The Pharisee. They're called the keepers of the law. They have great influence with the common people. But here's the thing. They sought praise of people by observing external rituals. They think they're earning favor by God by upholding the external rituals, even, their, even though their hearts are hardened to him. Fasting, prayer in the streets with loud voices, eating only certain things, good works to earn salvation and favor with God. And they prided themselves on their works to uphold the law. What's the law? The Old Testament. It's the Old Testament with a specific emphasis as we're going to see on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So there's the Pharisees. The second group you see in verse 34, it's trying to trap Jesus, is the Sadducees. They're another religious group, but here's the difference. They hated the Pharisees, and the Pharisees hated them. Why? Because the Sadducees were in with the Roman government. These were wealthy aristocrats vying for political power. And of course, the Pharisees, they didn't like the Romans. And so they didn't like the Sadducees because of their association with them. And they're members of the highest class of society. Actually, did you know that the, holy, or the, that the um, chief priest was chosen from the Sadducees? They're the highest class of society. And even though they were opposed to the Pharisees, they were both united very clearly in their opposition against Christ. Nothing like a common enemy to unite people. For good or evil, by the way. And so here they are united against Jesus. So when the Pharisees heard, notice there it says, they heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. Verse 34. When they heard that he silenced them, they gathered together. What did they do? Little purist huddle. Okay, little separatist huddle. Hey, bring the boys in. Let's see what we're going to do. Because this is our opportunity to not only one-up the Sadducees and look really good in front of the people, because the Pharisees love the praise of man, but it's also another crack at Jesus to try to discredit him because he's stealing our crowds. He's making a mockery of our rep. 
And then look at verse 35. I feel really bad for this guy. Verse 35. And one of them, that's one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. See what just happened there? They send a lawyer out to test Jesus. Now, the lawyer's a big deal. They're sending out the big guns. It's not like, okay, let's draw straws, dude. You got the short one. You're going against Jesus. No, 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 no. This lawyer is a scribe, which is, they're called scripture lawyers. They're experts in Old Testament explanation and application of the law. Experts. They know everything. They devoted their whole life to it. So they're like, okay, dude, you're on. Now, question. I always laugh when I read this. How do you think this is going to go for him? You're like testing on the guy who wrote the book. It's like trying, like today, I was thinking, I was just laughing all week on this. I'm sure my wife thought I was nuts in my office. But it's like, think about this. It's like trying to beat God in a game of Jeopardy. Like, how do you think you're going to do? You're done, man. And so this guy's going in to test. Now, the word test there is not like, hey, I really want to learn from Jesus. It's, I want to maliciously discredit him. I want him to, to speak against himself and defy the word of God so we have a reason to charge him. Now, the Old Testament law, just so we're clear, as I said, it's the Old Testament, but it's also an emphasis on the Pentateuch. It's the Mosaic law that God gave to Moses in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. All right, about how his people were to live in relationship with him. That's the first four Ten Commandments, by the way. First four commandments. And then how they're to live with each other, the second six. It's all interpersonal relationships. So it's the Ten Commandments, but here's the also thing. The Mosaic Law is comprised of 613 other commandments. If we are to live in right relationship with God and each other. And so in verse 36, notice what the lawyer asks. He says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What he asks there is this, which out of all these commandments is the greatest or the one of central importance? Which is the one that carries the greatest weight? Because the Pharisees were legalists and they often used human tradition to nullify scripture, they were weighting the commandments. They said, well, some are heavier and some are lighter. Some need to be more important, some less. Is that the way God works? I was like, no. But this is what they're doing. So what's the weightiest commandment, God? In verse 37 to 38, look at Jesus' response. He says to him, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So Jesus responds by quoting a passage of scripture this lawyer would know really well, Deuteronomy 6.5. It's the Shema, and the Jewish people would recite it two times a day. They still do. They would know it. And Jesus declares that it is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And Mark, when it, there's the Great Commission listed in the book of Mark, it adds strength. The sum of that is every part of us, our complete being, we are to love God with a total devotion. Every part of us. What we do, what we think, what we say. Now, let's just break this down. I'm going to read this real slow so we get the magnitude of this command. Think about this. Every thought you and I have, every thought, every feeling you and I ever have, every desire you and I ever have, 
every part of our identity and all that we are. Let's drill down a bit more. Everything we do, everything we say, in every second of our lives. Everything upon which our heart and mind is captivated by will be an expression of our love for God. And we will love nothing or no one else apart and more than him. He is to be our first love in every part of our lives. Total devotion. Every part in every moment. Okay, just stop. Feel the weight of this for a moment. Look at your past week. This is very convicting for me this week. Just look at your past week. Your interactions with your kids, your interactions with your spouse, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your coworkers, your neighbors, your thoughts that you're having when you don't think anyone's watching. How's this working for you? Legitimately loved ones, feel the weight of this command right now. How's it going? Are, are you thinking the same thing I'm thinking? I need a savior. Because I have no hope of fulfilling and being faithful to this command. None. On my own strength. See, I love how Charles Price, the commentator, puts this. It's a humanly impossible demand. Jesus just amped the bar completely. It's a humanly impossible demand. Jesus presents the requirements of God in such a way as to expose the inevitable despair that must come to the heart of the person who would try to live this way on their own, apart from depending on him to do it in them. Are you feeling the weight of that despair of the heart that you would try to do this and honor the Lord on your own strength? You may say this, well, Jesus, Jesus lays this command down, but if it's impossible, then how am I supposed to even have a chance at fulfilling God's command of me. Here's how, ready? Through his son, through the one who's speaking it. Through his son, who humbled himself under his father's authority and left heaven and saw that we had a major problem. And that problem is sin. And it's a problem that each of us has, but it's a problem none of us can deal with on our own. And he saw us in our despair. He saw us in our depravity. He saw us in our darkness. And Jesus says, I'm coming. He humbles himself under the will of his father, takes on flesh, becomes fully God and fully man, lives a perfect life, goes to the cross to die for you and me and pay the penalty for the sin, God's wrath. What's the penalty of sin? Life, eternity in hell. separated from God. That's the best it gets for you if you're here today and have never confessed Christ as your Savior. 
And then he rose again three days later, defeating sin and death after paying the wrath of God and the penalty of God for your sin and mine. Every sin you've ever done, every sin you're doing, every sin you will do, Jesus took it. And if we repent of that sin and turn from it and confess him as our Lord and Savior, Jesus, you alone are the Savior. Muhammad's not going to do it. Buddha's not going to help me. Jesus Christ alone will save me when I call on his name. And when we repent of that, it doesn't matter. You don't need to clean yourself up. He's like, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. My love for you is enough. This is why John 15, 5 says, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. No spiritual good. There's no chance you have. I pray so much. And who am I? I'm just a human instrument. But I pray right now the Holy Spirit is speaking through me into your heart. I don't want you to leave here thinking, well, I'll just try to love God more. It's not going to work. You need to call on his name. If we are to have much love for Christ in our hearts, then we need to be at his throne on our knees. And faithfully walking out in obedience in his power. And we can love him, 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved us. He saw you in your stuff. He saw you in your sin. He saw you in your porn. He saw you in your alcohol. He saw you in these things. And he says, I'm coming for you. I love you. But will you turn to me? And you may say this, well, as Christ works in us, if I turn to Christ, what does, what does growing in a love for God look like? What does God desire this love to be? And he shows us that word love there means three main things. Let's write these down. Go to verse 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That word love is the Greek word agapeo. You'll see it on the screen. Greek word Jesus uses is agapeo. And, and when it's used of loving God, this is why, loved ones, it's so important to read Scripture in context. Context is key. Understand your context. Because the word love here is agapeo. But it's used of loving God, not loving each other right now. It's not a horizontal love. He's talking about a vertical one. And it means to take pleasure in God and prize him above all other things. We are not to call to prize people above all other things. We're called to prize God. To take pleasure in, I love that, and prize him. Are we prizing him, loved ones? And you say, well, what? let's drill down even more practically. What does that look like practically? There's three areas this word encompasses. Ready? Growing in an affectionate reverence of him. An affectionate reverence. And that is our prayer night. This, is what, this was the whole prayer. Hey, loved ones, just a little in, invitation here. If you missed our prayer night on Wednesday, I gotta tell you, lock in the next one. It was off the charts. It was off the charts. That room was packed. I couldn't even see to the back of the room because so many hands were raised. Calling on the name of the Lord to fear him and reverence him in this nation and in this church. It means I'm growing in a fear of the Lord through a deeper love, asking him for a deeper love and honor and desire for him and a hunger for him above all else, to prize him above all else. Because why? Why? Because of what he's done for me through the gospel that we just talked about. Through the gospel. 
Jesus, your love for me was so great. I want to love you more. I realize there's an increasing longing for his presence. There's an increasing longing for holiness in our lives. We're sick of the filth of sin. There's an increasing power for our lives, a longing for his grace and purity in our lives. And we seek him through his word. This word is living and active. You say you want to grow in your love for God, grow in your love for his word. Guaranteed. Get in front of him 10 minutes. You say, well, I'm not feeling anything. Keep at it. Keep at it. You say, well, I'm not feeling the emotion. It's not about feeling. It's about a choice. That's what love is. Keep at it, loved ones. That's why the devil works so hard to keep you out of this book. Because as it's living and active, it gets in you. We start to grow in our love for the Lord through prayer, asking him, say, Jesus, help me to love you more. I love my stuff. I love my job. I love the thought of being married and not single anymore. All these things I'm prizing more than you. Lord, on the altar of my praise, may there be no other name than Jesus, the Son of God. And then as he exposes that, Lord, repent, loved ones. Repent of that. Turn from that. Turn to him. Abide in him. We can't hear. We can't bear this fruit by ourselves, by being a good person. It means an increased reverence for God. I'm not approaching God flippantly. It's not like, yo, Jesus, you're my homie. What you want to say? Are you kidding? This is the living God. The one who even angels have to shield their eyes. And yes, we've been given access to his throne room, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, by Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us on the cross. And we are called to come confidently, but not flippantly. There's a huge difference there. Confidently, but not flippantly. And we grow in loving what he loves in our homes, honoring what he honors, valuing what he values. In our class, in our work, we work with integrity because Jesus calls us to and we love him. We show up on time. We don't steal stuff. We honor our employers by not talking back to them. We're not lazy. We work with all our might as heartily to the Lord. In our homes, we're shepherding them and founding them on the gospel every day with our children, with our wives. In our speech, when we're tempted and that temptation comes, you're like, Lord, help me to love you more than this temptation right now. Help me to love you more than my desire to go back into the bottle. Help me to love you more than go back into the fear and the anxiety. Help me to love you more than going back to the pornography on the screen. Help me to love you more. And he promises, he goes, when you're tempted, I'll provide a way of escape, loved ones, but you've got to take it. You've got to take it. You have to choose to take it by faith, and I'll give you all you need. You see, must understand, loved ones, reverence for God fuels our love for God, and our love for God fuels the mission of God. So question, what or who does your life show you're reverencing right now? Just, can we be honest? What are you prizing more than the king? What's the top of your prize list? Maybe for some of us, it's a status. Getting married is the top of my prize list. That's going to bail out, loved ones. Maybe it's getting that job, top of your prize list. Really? That's going to bail out too. Money, status, hobbies, stuff. What is it for you? Just be honest before the king. There's no condemnation when we come to him. 
It's only comfort. Repent of that where you need to. Secondly, so we see that word love the Lord your God. There's an affectionate reverence, but there's also, as an overflow of that, a prompt obedience to him. It means a prompt obedience to him. Prompt obedience to the word of God as you get in it and you're abiding. Through, you hear the preaching of God's word, maybe sitting right now and God's birth something. Hey, loved ones, as it exposes our heart and shows us the areas of our lives we're walking in sin. Loved ones, even right now, we grow in our love for God by loving his word and not delaying obey it, obeying it in his power. Too much of us, too many of us, if we're going to live on mission for Christ, we can't have this mentality. If we're going to be alive in Christ and walking in him, increasingly rooted in him, we can't have this mentality. Yeah, Jesus, you showed me that. I know I got this sin in my life. I'll deal with it later. You're not going to be growing in Christ with that because God will not bless your sin or mine. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's not like, yo, Jesus, yeah, I see this. I leave this sermon right now. Nah, I'll get right with my wife later. Really, like, Can we just understand something, loved ones? Love you so much. Delayed obedience is just disobedience. Let's stop with the excuses and start with repentance. I love how John 14, 23, Jesus just makes this clear. Jesus answered him. You see it on the screen. He answered him, he says, if anyone loves me, what? He will keep my word. Not when he feels like it. Not when his life is broken and he has no other choice. You will keep my word. As my spirit exposes that sin that's keeping you from me. The grumbling, the complaining. Are we keeping his word right there? Prompt obedience? See, can we, just, can we just say something? Can I exhort us in something as a church? Can we just let the world live like the world, please? And as the church, we're called to live like the church. And so let's stop trying to fit in with the values of the world and start living in increasing reverence to the Lord and increasing obedience to him. Because that is what that witness is what God is going to use and he promises to use by proclaiming the gospel through our lips and in our lives. That's what he uses to draw people to himself. It's not how much in common you can have with them. Let the world live like the world. We are the church. We're called to live like the church. Who is the church called to live like? Jesus Christ. There's too much world in the church and not enough church in the world. Amen? Prompt obedience, loved ones. Let's not delay. Because here's the truth. You'll see it on the screen. True obedience is only possible out of a response of love to God, not out of a legalistic requirement to keep for God. Otherwise, the Pharisees would have had it made. And Jesus continually rebukes them because he looks into their heart. He says, you know nothing of me. And even Matthew 7, Jesus says, on that day when I come back, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not? Did we not cast out demons in your name, do miracle wonders? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You had the talk, you had all the actions, but you didn't have the heart. I don't know you. Reverence, prompt, this is what it means to love God. So our prayer has to be, Say, where do I start? A prayer has to be this. Oh, Lord, help me to love you more today. Help me to love you more than my sin. Help me to love you more than the other idols I want to go to. Help me to love you more. So question, where are you not walking in obedience to Christ? Right now, as the Holy Spirit said, where are you? Holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness, resentment, gossip, complaining, grumbling. 
self-love. Where is that for you, loved ones? That was so convicting for me this week. Lastly is this, love for God means affectionate reverence of him, prompt obedience to him. Here's the third thing that word means, constant gratitude for him. It means this, I'm living with a grateful recognition for the benefits I've received from the Lord. What are the benefits? The gospel, a grateful recognition of the gospel in my life, of what Christ has done for me. The salvation I have in him that I don't deserve. If I've repented of my sin and confessed of my Savior, the mercy I'm given every day that I don't deserve, the grace I'm given every day that I don't deserve, the power I'm given every day that I don't deserve, the love that God shows me loyally and steadfastly that I don't deserve, the provision God gives that I don't deserve. You and I don't deserve to be here in the church right now, loved ones. We don't deserve to be able to serve in this church or come to a small group in this church. Are we grateful for this or are we complaining about it? Our spouse, are we complaining about them or are we grateful to God for them? Are we grateful that God's mercy towards us, the power of the gospel, is not dependent on our circumstances? It's not dependent on how we feel. It's on who God is. His saving of you, his promises for you, his provision for you, his protection of you, his grace and his love for you. See, gratitude, hey loved ones, here's why I love that this word means gratitude. Because gratitude is such a weapon against greed. What is greed? It's the opposite of gratitude. What, if gratitude says, I'm thankful to the Lord, Greed is a love for self because it's based on you acquiring more, more position, more money, more status, whereas gratitude to the Lord is the opposite and shows our love. Because here's what we have to understand. This came yesterday in sermon review, so there's no slide for this. Gratitude is the attitude that shows the magnitude of our love for God. Ouch. Gratitude is the attitude that shows the magnitude of our love for God. Whereas greed is the attitude that shows the magnitude of our love for self. You say, isn't it? Because listen, loved ones. Hey, eyes up for one sec. Can we just shoot real here? Isn't it really easy to be grateful for God when we get what we want? I'm so grateful to God. He just gave me what I want. Yeah, praise the Lord. We should be grateful for what he gives us. But it's so much easier, isn't it? Okay, wait a second. Let's go look at the other side of that. Our true love for God is shown when I am genuinely grateful for who he is and what I've inherited by his love through the gospel when I'm going through the trial. not just when I'm through the trial. And I see how God's provided. And when he's taken away my sickness, and when he's given me what I was asking him for, it's easy to be grateful there. What about in the middle of it? In the valley of the shadow of death. That's when our love for God is shown. Our love for God through the benefits of the gospel that he has given us. Can I be genuinely grateful in the sickness Am I still grateful that my God chose me and saved me? 
Can I still be grateful in my singleness? Instead of saying, God, I'll say you're so good and praise the Lord when you give me a spouse. Can I still be grateful to him in the heartache? This is where the magnitude of our love is. The gospel's love has not changed for you or me. Can I still be grateful to God when I don't get the ministry opportunities that I want and I think I should be promoted? Can I still be grateful and thankful to him right there? Or will I just say praise God when he brings me through or gives me it? See, let's ask the question a different way. Is your gratitude, is your love for God dependent on his performance for you? That's what it comes down to. Is your love and gratitude to God, is mine dependent on God's performance for me? And as long as he gives me what I want, then I'll be grateful. How about what he's already given you in the gospel? God, you love me and I don't deserve that. You saved me and this is hard. Or, you know what? I'm going to be content to serve in the parking lot and not need to be and push myself to be up front because it's by your mercy I can even do this. Because here's what the truth we have to realize, loved ones. If we can only be grateful or thankful for, what God, for who God is and what he's done when we get what we want, and until then, things don't go our way, and we grumble and complain about, what are you doing, God, and why am I still here, and why am I doing this? Let me ask you a question. Then who is our love truly for? It just exposes a huge love for self. Because that's the only place it can go. Okay. A life lived in a love for the Lord, you'll see it right there, is a life marked by increasing gratitude for the Lord. You show me someone, and I was just, some of the most humbling moments as a pastor, when you sit at the bedside of someone who's dying And there's joy on their face. And there's tears in their eyes. They're not grumbling. They're not complaining. Like, thank you, Jesus, you saved me. And I know where I'm going. You're still with me. It's hard. Yeah, guys, it's hard. But you're still with me. You haven't changed. Your steadfast love is the same. And you sit there, you're just like, how great thou art, Lord. That's love for God displayed gratitude. Thank you. I don't understand why you put this in my life, but thank you that it's for my good. I trust you. So take a look. How about you? Are you growing in your love for the Lord with a total devotion to him? There it is right there. Where do you need to turn the attitude of greed to the gratitude of love? See, the motive for our mission must be love. Loving God with all that we are. Total devotion, and from the overflow of this, last point today is this. We must be loving others as ourselves with constant affection. The question we're confronted with at the end of this day is this. I am called to love my neighbor, but will I choose to love them as myself? I am called to love my neighbor, but will I choose to love them as myself? Look at verses 39 and 40. 
Let's go to 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. Here it is. Ready? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophet. See, Jesus then gives the second command that overflows from the first one. If we're not growing in our love for God, you will not be growing in your love for others. The vertical first, and now the horizontal. And he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's the neighbor there? Here's the Greek word for neighbor. Ready? It means nearby. Anybody who's nearby you. Just look at the person next to you and say, you're my neighbor. There it is. You're my neighbor. That's it. Anyone who's nearby you. Yes, your physical neighbors in your neighborhood, but your coworkers, the people at the grocery store, at the bank that God puts you with, anyone you are called to love your neighbor. Any person, here's what it means, irrespective of age, gender, race, or religion, with whom we live or have a chance to meet, there's your neighbor. Everybody. And Jesus says, We are to love. Okay, read scripture in context. Here's what love means in this one. Ready? Same word, agapeo, but different context gives it a different meaning. And this one means actively choosing, that's key, to do what the Lord prefers in the life of another by his power and direction. So the first one was reverence. Now, prize him above all things. Now, it's actively choosing to do what the Lord prefers. Choosing like Christ did. Choosing the will of the Father. Choosing to obey. You see, love is not, cannot be based on, well, I feel like they deserve it. Love is an act of choice. An act of choice. Notice this. It says, you shall. That's an active imperative. An active command. That means there's no exceptions. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, wait. Unless you're sick and not feeling well, then you can be grumpy. Unless you're tired. How many times, I'm so convicted of this, how many times do we go to the ones we love the most, our wives, our kids, our roommates, our coworkers, and we, and we yell at them, and we demean them, and we complain about them, and then we come back with this, oh, I was just tired. There's no exception here. There's no exception clause to this. And this is why I think, just even from those examples, you've got to see why it's got to be done in the power of God. Because we're not going to go there. Not if you're sick, you're tired. Here's another big one. Not if you feel like the other person deserves it. Well, you really served me, so I'll show some love for you. Show you some love. Really? There's no exception clause on this. Whether that you feel that person who's hurt you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The person who has reamed you out and gossiped about you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's, there's no stipulation here for your mood or the actions of the other person. Now, now I want to give you some clear. Just in case someone here is going like this. So this means, great, this is good news, because now, if I love myself more, I'll be able to love others more. I would say that's not what it's saying. No. Jesus is not commanding that. He's not commanding us to love ourselves so we can love others more. Notice this. He says you shall love others as you love yourself. He's assuming we're doing a great job already of loving ourselves. 
because that's our default, love for self. It means we are to measure our love for others but what, by what we would wish for ourselves. And we have a responsibility to seek the greatest good, not give your leftovers, the greatest and highest good of others. Now, look around today. Illustration, ready? Look around today. Is this what our culture says love is? Ready? Little examination. I'm not out for my greatest good, but yours. Does our culture say that today? How about this? I'm not seeking attention for myself. I'm not trying to push myself to the front, but I'm going to give the attention that I would like to you. I'm going to listen instead of needing to be heard. How about this? You've hurt me, but by Christ's power in me, I'm choosing to respond in love and not anger. Is this what culture promotes? Why do you think the Avengers was one of the greatest top box movies of all time? We're hardwired for vengeance. When there's only one Avenger, amen? And it's not Captain America. How about this? I'm choosing to forgive you even though you hurt me and not hold a grudge. Or this, my measure of love towards you is not based on what you've done for me, but on what Christ has done for me. See, loved ones, can we just make this clear? This is why you can't live like the world. You cannot live like the world and expect that you're going to grow in your love for Christ and others. The world will not take you there. Let the world live like the world. We are the church. Live like the church. This is radical from the world. Why? Because it's literally Christ increasingly living through me. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, but are you choosing to love them? And you say, what does this look like? Here, I'm going to give you a little challenge this week. Why don't you just take 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7 home and do some devotions on it. Here it is. Look, at this is what love looks like, agapeo, person to person. Love is patient. Are you patient or irritable? And just let the Lord do some heart surgery here, loved ones. Love is kind. Were you angry at that person? Is there repentance? Is there impatience that needs to be repented of? Love does not envy or boast. Are you boasting in your accomplishments? And when someone says, this is what God did, you say, yeah, well, you should have done for me. Really? Love does not insist on its own way. Are you humbling yourself for God to do a new thing, even when it's not what you want at that moment? Love is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't hold grudges. Do people feel like they have to walk on eggshells around you because of your response to them? Ask your spouse. Ask your roommates. Ask your, like, ask your brothers and sisters. How about this? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. That means if it sees sin in the life of a brother or sister, in love they go to them and say, I can't see, this is going on, I want to walk with you and bear this burden with you. It's not loving, rejoicing at wrongdoing, but what? Rejoices in the truth. Do you have someone who can come into your life, and are you this person for others, who can be a faithful, wounding friend when needed? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all, it believes the best, it doesn't let accusations and assumptions cloud perception of that person. 
Well, I heard this, so this is what I believe they're like. Really? Love bears all things. Here's the deal. Love doesn't bow out. Jesus Christ has not abandoned his bride. And we are not called men to abandon ours as well. Do you understand? Jesus Christ hasn't bailed out on his bride. We are not bailing out on ours. Husbands and wives in this room. It bears all things. When there's an issue with someone in the church, it's so easy to, it breaks my heart. It's like, well, I'm out of here. I'll just go to the next corner and go to the next church. Meanwhile, you're going to have the same problem there because you're not dealing with it here. We just bail. Go get another wife. Go get another church. Don't run from that, loved ones. Love bears all things. It doesn't bail out. It says, I'm with you. So question, you see this. Let me just ask you a question. How's your love life? I'm not talking romantic love life. Please, I don't want to know. I, I, listen, how's your love life? Just look, there's the list. Study it this week. See, you notice in verse 40, as we finish up today, it says this. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The word depend there means this, hangs on. All the other commands, the law and the prophets, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, and now in Christ, all of the commands of Scripture depend or hang upon these two being fulfilled. Everything else flows from these. And I was thinking this, as we get ready for communion, I'm thinking this, watch this. What would our workplaces, just think for a moment, what would our workplaces, what would our neighborhoods, what would our marriages, what would our families, what would our relationships, what would our church, what would our small groups, what would our service teams look like if we stopped seeking a love for self and asked God fervently to help us love him more so we can love one another as ourselves. What would it look like? And then it hit me. Do you know what it would look like? It would look like Jesus Christ. It would look like Jesus. The Son of God who said this. How do you know? Matthew 5, 17. It's on the screen. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I'm not negating the Old Testament law here. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. And every one of the commands of God hangs upon him, upon Jesus, because he came to earth and hung upon a cross. Fulfilling them perfectly through his life, death, and resurrection, which he went through out of his love for you and me. And our motive for our mission is love, because the motive for our mission is Jesus. That's the only thing that can sustain it. He is love. And if we are in him, he stands ready to give us all we need to grow in loving him with all we are, with a total devotion, and loving others as ourselves with constant affection. Oh, Lord, help us to love you more.